This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm joined in the studio this morning in this lovely uh, studio, although sadly not in the sunshine of Melbourne, by Dr. Diani. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? You well? I'm, I'm, I'm well. I'm mostly recovered from, I think, the cold from hell, <laughs> which yeah. I've, you know, it's just been a terrible <laughs> lurgy, whatever it is going around. Yeah, a lot of people are getting it. I don't know, Dr. Cromo, are you, uh, you okay there? Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm fine. I was a little bit rushed this morning. I tried to fit in a run in, yeah. the, fro- in the frost. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of frost. We did something last night, my son and I, which uh, I remember doing as a child, the old container of water out on the grass, see if it freezes, because we have not had those cold winters, I have to say, for I reckon a good decade at least in Melbourne, and this year we've got one of those nice cold ones, which is which is cool. Yeah, I went for a walk this morning and there were lots, there was lots of frosty grass around. Mm, mm. So we froze the, yep, froze the tub of water, it was cool. Uh, how uh, was how thick did it get? Uh, about an inch on the wow. top, so quite a bit, but uh, yeah, as long as, you know, if you're doing that folks, you've got to leave them out in a nice exposed area, don't put them under a veranda or in the garage or something, that won't work, but... Out in the middle of the grass or the middle of the dirt, you know that'll uh, that'll soon freeze over. Bit of fun for the kids, you know. Show them that <laughs> na- the nature does it. <laughs> yeah, kids. fun to me as well. Well, I'm still a kid, so that's <laughs> hard. <laughs> okay, so let's get into some news. Uh, we've got a couple of really good guests for you in the studio today, folks, and also another one on the phone from Perth talking about some cool stuff. But we'll start off with some science news. Dr. Tiani, do you want to start? Sure. So uh, this is actually just a quick one, and I, I know that uh, we've all heard a lot over the past year or two about the human microbiome, all of the uh, bacteria that live on and around and in our bodies. And uh, I'm personally a huge fan of the microbiome. I know, Dr. Cromo, you're also a huge fan of the microbiome. Yes, I am. So this is a story actually about uh, a plant or plant microbiome, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there was a study in in Science or Science Express um, this week that looks at uh, what microbes attach themselves or associate themselves with plant roots. And uh, so I thought it was interesting just in terms of, you know, because we do hear so much about the human Mm. microbiome, it's, it's important to remember that, you know, there are ecosystems of microbes associating themselves with other organisms all over the place and plants need their their microbes as much as we do i don't think a show goes by without jeff mentioning the microbiome (laughs) yeah (laughs) he loves it oh it's a huge area of research uh so anyway uh, a group in america looked at what might be controlling what what uh, bacteria because obviously soil is full of microbes full of bacteria full of fungi uh, but if you look really close to the the roots it's not it's it's a very defined um community that lives there so Mm. what might be controlling this and they looked at um a plant hormone called salicylic acid which you'll probably all be familiar with as um aspirin Aspirin? oh (laughs) you two were looking at each other knowingly there and i'm like what the hell are they talking about so salicylic acid is um well it's a metabolite of what we take in aspirin but it's also used in topical acne creams uh and uh plants synthesize salicylic acid as a defense um chemical Mm -hmm. and uh so 
in this study they looked at some mutants that weren't able to produce salicylic acid. They also weren't able to produce a few other um, defence um, molecules. So it's basically... And, and they found that these mutants had altered uh, microbiomes in their, in their rhizosphere, so in that area just around um, the roots. So it's, it looks like the, the plant immune system is somehow controlling which microbes are able to get close to the roots, which mm. ones aren't able to get so close uh, in a very similar way to the way that our immune system helps to modulate you know what our friendly microbes are Mm. versus what the pathogens are and obviously there's a lot more to to look at we don't know whether salicylic acid is like keeping things away or whether it's inviting things in and that sort of thing but you know it's it's an interesting area that's um yeah, yeah. It, it must, I mean, it must be interesting in certain environments because I know um, I was up uh, past Marysville uh, last Friday um, near Lake Mountain there, and there's areas where the ferns literally make a carpet, you know, and they're so close together. You can imagine in those areas, it's almost like a a layer of activity from from those plants where you know nothing but the good stuff can can get in. According to that, you know, it would be a, a whole region where you know only certain bacteria are, are allowed. Well, the rhizosphere is is a very it's really very close to the roots that mm. area so you know you've got the the soil which is a you know, mixture of, of things but very close into the roots so you know within a millimeter of okay. the, the root surface oh, really close like yeah within yeah. yeah so really close that's where you get this um selective uh, this selection mm. happening so um yeah so it's it's quite interesting cool research stuff. anyway hmm. dr Kramer. Well, that reminds me of the emerging field that uh, is showing not so... Uh, it's kind of obvious that a walk in the park is, is good for your health compared to a walk in the city. It is possible. <laughs> what about if it's a park in the city? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but it's possible that when you walk in the park or by the sea uh, that you are breathing in these little microorganisms, mm. those microorganisms going into your body, travelling up a nerve to your brain and influencing your behaviour. It's absolutely awesome. It's just hypotheses for now, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. But anyway, mm. so we on do, to news. But we do feel good. I mean, you <laughs> yes, know, when exactly. You go, you, we feel go good in a, nature, yeah. You go for a walk outside and, and you feel good. Now, whether it's the fresh air or just the lack of sensory sort of overload yeah. that we're getting when we're in, you know, in the middle of town, yeah. um, you feel good. And I think... This is this area is ripe for the amateur scientists. For those who are interested in this, think about kind of what controlled experiments would you would you do? Would you show a picture of nature to mm. someone? Even those patients recovering from a serious illness who got a window on nature in their hospital room do better. So yeah. it's complicated. I can't see the day light from my office at work at the moment <laughs> and i have to say ditto no, with me i just no, moved yeah no amount of pictures on my wall is helping that problem so thank you to my employer for putting me in a location where i have no windows it reminds me of a scene from 1984 <laughs> anyway you have no windows you must be a mac user yeah <laughs> Oh, dear. Anyone who's a friend of Dr. Cromo's on Facebook becomes somewhat immune to these sorts of jokes because <laughs> they're all the time. Uh, okay, so uh, my news items are the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, the ugly is people demonstrating against other races and religions based on what? Certainly not biology. We're all the same biology, so that's mm. an ugly face. All pink on the inside. Yes. The bad is bad science and... 
<sighs> Bejeeba's homeopathy was in the news again. It's, it will yeah. not die. It will not die. No. Um, well, it, we're it, trying to keep... Na- it's had nails in the coffin all over the place. The snake oil salesman has to be the second oldest profession, is it not? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's still, still going well. Um, but the good. The good is, is based around... Um, uh, Star Trek inspired technology. The first brief bit is where somebody has actually got a star. You know, a McCoy had this little probe to accelerate mm-hmm. um, healing. Somebody's mm-hmm. got one of those already. Developed it and they worked on animal skin. 30% quicker healer healing on rat skin. Um, and even on humans now, just uh, by ultrasound. That's it, ultrasound. So. First, um, Star Trek-inspired technology. Secondly is the Vulcan mind meld. Um, it is closer than we think. Is this the uh, Facebook... In, um, is this Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg, whatever his name is, or someone was trying to fund this? I, I'm not I sure. Something about I'm this. not sure whether it has been, uh, whether been funded right. by Zuckerberg, but what happens is... Uh, what they did, whether you whether you like animal research or not, is up. This is up for debate. What they did is they connected the brains, first of all, of rats, and they also, then they connected the brains of uh, of um, primates, uh, chimpanzees. I think what they were trying to show is that collective brain power could solve a problem more than a single brain. Hmm. And the chimpanzee experiment, they showed that these chimpanzees together could. Um, power a robot arm to produce food Um, what they want to do is in humans connect humans together so many you know parallel computing to Mm. put computing and put uh, same i think it it works the same with uh, telescopes doesn't it put more of them together you get more power so it was saying this article that that yes, this is the first crude way of doing it, but they may, we may just be able to put like a, a helmet on in the future, which connects us directly to other people. Now, whether some of whether we would actually like to have other people reading our thoughts is another matter. But I just thought it was great and forward-looking to try to get people to to bring their brains together to solve problems. Think about all these, you know, the mathematical problems, the scientific problems. It's a good way to think. And the the journalist who wrote this said, "Look, it is invasive at first but we're working towards the non-invasive. Well, I thought it was a great so way how to do they? So how do they interface these two brains? Uh, do, do you... Uh, do I'm you not, it or? seemed... Like um, all the technical stuff, it, it seemed that they basically connected a neuron in one brain through a wire into the other brain. I it, it, it could be as simple as that. Um, but somehow it, uh, these um, multiple animals became one organisational being. Hmm. Sounds like a little way off. Two heads better than one. But you you can still, you can do a brain image. You can actually at the moment do a brain image and in large inverted commas read someone's mind. Mm. Each Mm. bit of the brain is specific, generally specific to a a specific emotion or thought. So you can kind of read people's minds anyway. But Mm. yeah, a little way off. Interesting stuff. Well, maybe we can get some people to feel a degree of solidarity with their fellow humans. Yes, actually it's a good... you know, and, and, and if you could connect, connect them up, it's not just about grunt processing power, but maybe <laughs> understanding why some of us may feel certain ways about things like gay mm. marriage and so forth, and mm. might be enlightening. Yes, definitely. Yes, you know, now, um, 
And Dr. Downey's going to get pretty excited here because I'm going to mention <laughs> Pluto. Pluto time. Yeah, she's stop she, my beating heart. She's <laughs> she's bored to death by Pluto. <laughs> now, Dr. Shane, uh, you you mentioned in in your email that this was the greatest achievement since man walking or a humankind walking on the moon. Mm. Why is that? Well, it is just an extraordinary feat of engineering, science, technology, the whole lot, putting so many different fields together to achieve what is just, it is an incredible, incredibly difficult task to do what they've done. And what sets it aside from things like the Mars rover then? Well, look, Mars is a relatively easy get into, I mean, Mars is hard, you know, don't, don't sort of talk it the wrong way, but um, it is relatively easy. It's two years away, or you know, at max of the two years away for us to get to. We've done it many times now successfully. There's been a few problems with it, but we've also, um, we haven't got to a point, you know, where we've sent probes out to, to Pluto before because it's just so hard and it's so far away. I mean, it takes the signal four and a half hours just to get back to us. So if if, for example, the probe was to send us a signal that says, you know, there seems to be this big uh, sixth moon that we hadn't noticed before, it's uh, kind of in the way, what should I do? We're going to hit it in two hours. That's bad luck <laughs> because the round ah. trip time is nine hours, you know. So, and, you know, maybe give NASA half an hour to work on the problem in the middle. So, you know, it is, this is hard stuff. This is real deep space stuff. And most people don't know that when when the craft went past Pluto, it it was at an altitude of um, you know, well here to Los Angeles, Melbourne to Los Angeles, so pretty pretty close to wow. the surface, travelling at fifty thousand kilometres per hour. I, I think the um, the the piece of information that st- astounded me was that it made the pass by within seventy two seconds of when it mm. was planned, which yeah. is pretty phenomenal for something that was started kicked off, you know, years nine ago. years ago. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing yeah. when you think about, you know, we. I always thought, oh yeah, the physicists, you know, the astrophysicists kind of worked out you know, with some degree of accuracy where the planets go and how fast it takes them to go around. But they mm. know it exactly. Well, they how can do. You, you fire something off six years ago and know it's mm. exactly going to arrive at a particular time, place in time and space? Well, one of the things that we're very good at is, is gravity, Newton's yeah. laws, you know, general relativity. These things we know quite well. It's part of science that is actually, you know, even though we may not understand gravity in its sort of most Elemental basic form. sense, um, what causes it, but we do understand how to predict it and the way it works. And that that actually is, you know, has had an, enabled this sort of um, program to be an extraordinary success. And for those of you who sort of watched some of the images coming in, and we've only seen like a tiny bit, mm-hmm. the data is coming in at about a, a kilobyte a second, you know, so it's pretty slow, um, but We've seen such a tiny bit. It'll be coming in over the next six months um, as the information downloaded. The thing that's amazing, the, the, the similar moment for me sort of watching some of this live during the week was the point when the New Horizons craft first contacted um, Earth again after the flyby because it stopped transmitting during the flyby, so it focused ah, okay. just on recording data. But... There's a pretty good chance because no one knows what's in the Pluto system. It's quite there's – there's five moons, there's – potentially a lot of other material there this craft is moving damn fast you hit a small object at that speed it's all over 
And so it may have collected all that data, hit a small rock, and bang, we get nothing. And so there was this amazing period, if you were watching NASA TV live, where you know the, the whole team, as you say, Dr. Downey, knew about when that first callback signal was to come in. And you know the room just erupted when they got it, mm. because it meant that not only had they... They knew they'd got there, because the, the incoming photos as they were approaching Pluto were... You know, everyone was excited, they're pretty spectacular. But the real data comes as they go past and they weren't going to know whether or not that was successful until much later. And so when it finally called home and said, hey, you know, I'm okay. Um, what I just and, and, <laughs> and I've got some data sent back. You know? I mean, that was just an amazing moment. And uh, one of the things I found fascinating is on my phone I could watch the Deep Space Network in Madrid, um, which was the receiver at the time that was getting the data, um, and you could see straight away when the data started coming in from that particular craft. It's just amazing that anywhere mm. in the world you could know pretty much within seconds what the yeah. people on the ground at NASA knew in terms of receiving that signal. Mm. So, and is Pluto and its system a worthy subject for all of this effort? Well, I think you know the actual cost of um, of this mission is relatively low. So I saw a comparison the other day of mm-hmm. one of the new football stadiums in the US, which was far greater than than the Pluto mission, which oh, I think is a good comparison. Um, <laughs> a bit scary, um, but but you know this is something that is going to teach us more about planetary science and the way our planet evolved and so forth than pretty much everything we've done, because Pluto is one of those objects that I, I suspect a lot of people thought they'd find this icy, crappy, boring rock. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I put mercury in that category of you know boring you know not much there this is you know it really isn't that interesting to look at but pluto is not like that at all i mean they've found these beautiful sort of ice planes separated by these sort of chasms that look like they've been generated by wind somebody's actually drawn a map of pluto or a a geo physical geographical yeah, so map already many of these features of are only you know 100 million years old which means relative to the age of the solar system there's there's actual geography that is changing this is active tectonics um, even tectonics you know, there plates. is there is an atmosphere yeah. it has just some amazing features as probably one of the i mean second to earth it's probably the next most interesting wow. object in the solar system i would mm, say yeah. personally i mean there's keep in mind that some of the moons of um, jupiter and saturn are really interesting and dynamic but that's because the the gravitational fields of those big planets keeps them warm and keeps them moving ah. Pluto doesn't have that. So this is Pluto's own activity that we're seeing, which is quite extraordinary. I have a technical question. I know, like, we know what's in stars because the way that they shine and the wavelengths. Hmm. But how do we know what elements are on Pluto if it's not a star? It was a map of here. There's a bit more frozen methane here, Mm -hmm. frozen uh, carbon monoxide here. How do we know that? It's very simple. If you can see it, it means light is either coming from it or reflecting off it. And if it's reflecting off it from the sun, we know what that light is from the sun. It gets changed a little bit as it goes through the atmosphere of Pluto, comes up, we detect those changes, and you can work out what the elements are. It's simple spectroscopy, something we've been uh, able to do for many, many years. And so, yes, we can see that there's methane on methane, you know, large lakes quantities and things, of and methane. It's all frozen oh, in its lakes and mountains, yeah, but not yeah. how we... It's exactly. like a parallel universe, but it's our it's universe. Extraordinary. Yeah. Everything's made out of something different but familiar. So it's just the beginning, folks. There's going to be massive amounts of data coming in over, over the weeks. I'll be putting it all up on our Facebook site. Very excited. Dr. Diani's getting more excited by the minute. <laughs> I can tell by the look on her face. Three. Triple. Ah.
have a guest who hopefully is on the phone, Professor Yogi Kanagasingam from CSIRO over in Perth. Yogi, can you hear us over there? Yeah, I can hear you. Now, you're working on some really uh, interesting um, sort of remote technology with regards to offering eye exams to people in rural and remote areas. Tell us, first of all, um, are, are people in these areas not able to access normal eye exams um, routinely at the moment? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, we, we target mainly very remote areas mm-hmm. uh, where there aren't any mobile uh, coverage as well. So that is where we put the satellite dishes to reach out to the people who are otherwise underserved by IKEA specialists. Yep. So give us an idea of what sort of technology you have to put in their locations. Obviously, you mentioned the satellite dish, but presumably there has to be some other, um, yes. some other equipment to, to test their eyes. Yes, exactly. I mean, as usual, uh, we put some uh, funders cameras for imaging the back of the eye, retina, mm-hmm. and also we have developed our own uh, software system, telemedicine software system, so which is called the remote eye. Uh, we put it in uh, different locations. We train the people to use it uh, to capture the images and send the data to a specialist in the cities to read the images. So, so who's who's the person using the equipment in the remote area? Is that sort of like a local general practitioner or is it the community members themselves? No, it's uh, mainly nurses and Aboriginal healthcare workers mm-hmm. uh, in, in these locations. The, they are the ones who we train them to use. Uh, so they, they are pretty, only two days training, so they picked up very fast. Okay. So and what, what sort of information is sent? Are you, are you doing so the, the, the city-based um, professionals looking at these things live or is the data sort of captured and sent and how does that work? Uh, it's not live. It's actually delayed. Uh, but we try to provide service uh, diagnostic uh, advice within 24 hours because the ophthalmologists are very busy. Mm-hmm. So that's why we, in the second phase we are actually including an automated uh, reading of the images so so we can pick up those who really need treatment and surgery and then refer only those people to the ophthalmologists rather than everybody. Um, so once once someone has been diagnosed with a condition, say they... I don't know, might have glaucoma or something like that, and they get referred, do they then need to make the trip to a larger metropolitan city like yeah. like Perth? Or? Yeah, either they have to, uh, to travel to a closest uh, hospital or uh, visiting ophthalmologists. So usually one, I think they visit once in two months or three months. Uh, so we refer them. So they will be much more planned when they come to the location uh, what to do. Right, yep. Uh, Yogi, uh, it's Dr. Cromer here. I, um, hi, hi. Where is this going in the future? Could it be as simple as um, being, being transferred to a smartphone app that someone takes a picture of their own retina that way and then transmits <laughs> yes. it to you? Yeah, that is, that is my ultimate target, is actually putting these kind of uh, very cheap uh, cameras at home, part of the mobile phones or smartphones, uh, so people can take their photos and send it to the cloud and get a reading on the spot. Uh, that is the ultimate goal, So, but uh, I don't know how many years to, to mm-hmm. take. Uh, 
because the device has to be very cheap uh, to put it in houses. Um, because you, you, not only you can check for eyes, you can check for other diseases as well, such as Alzheimer's, uh, heart disease, uh, stroke mm. from the eyes. So that is a part of my research is uh, also. Mm. Yogi, my understanding is you've already looked at uh, well over a thousand patients, in particular from the Torres Strait Islands and southern Western Australia. How yes. how has that gone, and sort of what kind of um, numbers are you picking up in terms of people with serious conditions? Yeah, out of uh, I think we have seen one thousand two hundred and eighty-eight patients, and mm-hmm. uh, out of that, around sixty to seventy people actually had um, some sort of diabetic-related eye problems. Actually, the prevalence of diabetics. Uh, uh, is very high in Aboriginal communities, um, and out of the 60, about eight people had severe uh, eye problems. Uh, they could have gone blind if this service is not available. Mm. So it's, it is pretty interesting. So I mean, this seems to be sort of one half of the um, the issue in in one regard, in that you've got the the diagnosis part done. But in terms of actually getting some of these people from these communities to um, a location where they can get the sort of care needed. Is, is that being taken care of as well? Because I can imagine that's almost a bigger challenge. Yeah, that is actually the biggest challenge we had. <laughs> actually, you are correct. Uh, so what we did is we quickly, within 24 hours, we had to find them and uh, provide the feedback and uh, transfer them to the local hospital. In, in Torres Strait Islands, we actually transferred a couple of uh, patients to the Keynes Hospital because it was so serious. Uh, they had to get the laser treatment quickly. Mm. And, uh, and in terms of in terms of um, you know next steps, I mean, how, how far up do you think this can be scaled? Can you can you get this to the point where where you know the majority of rural communities across Australia are able to access this sort of facility. And that is what I'm pushing for now. So actually, WA Health uh, last week I heard that they are they have decided to roll out to many of the other towns in mm-hmm. WA. So that is the first step. I think it's a great news, and uh, I'm hope I'm also trying in Queensland and and other places uh, like Darwin, uh, Northern Territory as well. So we'll see how it goes. I think it's it's uh, if if we if we can roll out this service, that'll be great. And also part of the NHMRC actually funded us as the next stage of uh, um, research uh, to develop automation for disease grading. So you can, as I mentioned earlier, we can you can pick up those who need treatment and surgery quickly and refer those patients because most of the ophthalmologists are busy in the city areas, so they, they don't have time to read the images. And there's no fees for service for such kind of reading of images uh, yet mm-hmm. in Australia. So, that's, so automation will make a big difference, uh, I thought. Uh, Yogi, um, it looks like you've done something that's, um, you were talking about detection of, of, of other disorders. Something yeah. that sounds awesome but simple is this, your spice-infused eye test. <laughs> yes. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, actually we did, we used curcumin, which is found in turmeric, um, to, uh, we actually administer patients with curcumin for a couple of days, and when we image, you can pinpoint where the, uh, actually the curcumin goes and binds to the amyloids, which is actually the plug uh, goes in the brain when people develop Alzheimer's. Wow. Uh, my hypothesis is that uh, it, it goes through 
the eye first and then to the brain. So that is what, so we use that wow. curcumin, which goes and binds to the amyloid in the eye. And then we can pinpoint how much uh, amyloid in the eye and then correlate that to the amount in the brain. So you can predict the disease when, uh, how long this person is going to, uh, I mean, when the disease is going to come. <laughs> uh, so we can predict actually 15 years in advance in that way. So. Oh, that's pretty cool. Very interesting <laughs> stuff. Yogi, thanks so much for chatting to us. And it's it's great to see uh, finally in such a, a big country like ours people using satellites um, for, for all sorts of things because uh, you certainly can't get optometrists and ophthalmologists out to every corner of this country. It's just too big. So uh, keep up the good work. We hope uh, this program is expanded because um, it sounds like you're already identifying a lot of patients that need support. So well done. Uh, thank you very much for inv- inviting me to this uh, interview. You're very welcome. Thank you, Yogi. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Professor Yogi Kamagassingham from CSRO over in Perth and uh, doing some very interesting work there with um, remote communities and just helping to save sight. And I think it's just the beginning of And the, almost the more there. important than, well, I mean, very important is the, you know, 70 or 80 people that he's um, diagnosed, but the 1,200 people who were told, no, you don't have to yeah, worry. To you're go, okay. And we don't have to spend time uh, sending you to a specialist. I mean, that's, you know, a great efficiency. Yeah, no, it makes a big difference. And by the sounds of things, this can be scaled up pretty quickly. Mm. So that's that's good. You're uh, on 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane's a Science Show. If you haven't heard us before, in the studio we have a couple of guests who I found on the street earlier this morning, one outside the uh, Tullamarine Airport, um, Professor Mark Cook, who's from St. Vincent's Hospital in the University of Melbourne. He works in epilepsy research and is a surgeon. Is that right? Neurologist. Yeah, I knew there was something wrong. Um, it was on my page, but I, I, I don't remember giving you a scalpel. <laughs> it's a scary prospect. And Professor David Tilly, who also Lyle. works... Tiley. Liley. Liley. Jeez, I can't even read my own, my own writing today. Um, works with Mark from Swinburne University from the Brain and Psychological Sciences Research Centre. How are you, gentlemen? No, not too good. Good, thanks. Great. Mark just got off a plane, so <laughs> you're doing no, well. No, no, I'm good. You're good? Four o'clock, I'll be gone, but... <laughs> <laughs> what time zone are you in out of interest well 14 hours behind oh, okay Ooh, that's a bit rough <laughs> now we're going to talk about epilepsy and uh, some of the the diagnosis elements and treatment um, that you guys are involved with david i might start with you um in terms of diagnosis what what has been up until recently the sort of standard what have we been doing in order to diagnose when someone has epilepsy because i, I suppose as most people are aware or becoming more aware there's a whole range of levels of epilepsy that you can you can get from mild to quite severe well i i guess that's so i mean mark's probably the more authoritative person to talk about this but i mean our uh, particular thing that we're doing at swinburne of course is that we're uh, very interested in the non-invasive um, assessment of epilepsy mm-hmm. using magnetoencephalography and electroencephalography so i mean i can really talk from that point of view mm-hmm. and so one of the big problems i guess with um with epilepsy particularly focal epilepsy that's that's localised to a particular part of the brain and that is drug-resistant, is that how do you treat it? And so, you know, the standard approach has been to put um, intracranial grids and sort of invasive grids and try and actually work out quite uh, specifically where the epilepsy arises from. But, of course, you know, that's time-consuming, costly, 
and um, and it's obviously restricted. You know, I mean, obviously you can't put grids over the whole brain. Mm. And so at Swinburne, over the last um, oh, four years, we've had uh, one of the only uh, magnetoencephalographic devices um, in the Southern Hemisphere at our university, uh, which is kind of unusual given the fact that we're not a medical, we don't have a medical school there, and um, and we're not really at the moment formally affiliated with a hospital or anything. And so we originally got this piece of equipment for cognitive neuroscience research and stuff like that because we were hoping to get a better view into brain function. But it was always the intent at Swinburne to uh, make sure that this magnetoencephalographic piece of equipment was actually available for the uh, pre-surgical assessment and diagnosis of epilepsy. Now and you, so the you're going to have to say, what is a magnetoencephalogram? So magnetoencephalogram, this is what, what a, truly do? an extraordinary device, mm. and um, it's one of the, uh, um, it basically measures the weak magnetic fields produced by the, uh, by the active brain, and so of course, you know, most people know that you can record electrical activity using electroencephalography with electrodes on mm. the scalp and stuff like that, but what a lot of people don't know is that those currents that are generated in the brain can also produce weak magnetic fields, which can also be be measured. Uh, but the measurement of those weak magnetic fields is a much, 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 much more technically challenging task than um, uh, the measuring the uh, electrical activity. And so the magnetoencephalogram basically measures these using quantum mechanical principles. And mm-hmm. In fact, there was a guy called uh, Brian Josephson who invented a thing called the Josephson Junction when he was a graduate student um, uh, in about the 1960s. And it was completely at the time seemed like a completely recondite, pointless kind of thing to actually do. But his principle actually, or his thing, this thing called the Josephson Junction or the weak link, ultimately enabled us to measure these incredibly weak magnetic fields produced by the human brain. And to give you some idea about how weak these magnetic fields are, they're around about a million to a billion times weaker than the Earth's magnetic field. Mm. And that field's not that strong either. Sorry? The, the Earth's magnetic oh, field is... C- compared yeah. to what we're yeah. measuring in the brain, mm. it's, it's very strong. Yeah, yeah. 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 Are, they, are those fields changing rapidly in the brain Oh, they well? are. So yeah. they change in the same, same time scale as the EEG. So you're looking mm. at changing time scale in the order of milliseconds yeah. and things like this. So you can interrogate brain function in a way with MEG that you can't really do with... Uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, positron emission tomography, single photon uh, emitted computer tomography, um, and and it, the advantage that MEG has over EEG is that you can get better spatial localization, which of mm. course in the diagnosis of epilepsy, focal epilepsy, and the pre-surgical assessment of focal epilepsy is absolutely critical. Now, now, Mark, in terms of like when we talk about non-invasive versus invasive diagnosis, I mean, what's the What's the alternative to to the um, the magnetic imaging of the brain? Well, at the moment, we try and assess where seizures are coming from based on the clinical manifestations of the seizures. Mm. So the people's symptoms give us some rough idea where the events are coming from. And sometimes with PET scans or MRIs, we've got a rough idea where they're originating. But often we only have a, a crude Localization. We're only able to say roughly where they're coming from. So we need something more precise. And then we put electrodes directly on the surface of the brain or sometimes deep into the brain to try and figure that out. Mm. Uh, David's setup at Swinburne's just revolutionised our work because we can now localise these areas without doing anything near so invasive. Now, it might be suitable for absolutely everyone at the moment, but we've been using it to a tremendous level of success in patients who we would ordinarily have put grids in mm. or other invasive sets. So in terms of in terms of focal epilepsy how big 
of a, I guess, lesion on the brain are we talking that can be causing the epilepsy? And then what's the kind of spatial resolution that you're getting with the MEG? Like, is it in the order of millimetres or centimetres? Like, how well are you able to say, okay, it's this particular part of the brain that is the problem? Well, I'll perhaps answer the first part. So they can be very, very small, so they can be a few millimetres in size, the areas that we're interested in, but most usually they're they're a few centimetres in area that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. And uh, it depends a lot on the underlying pathology. But as to the resolution of the MEG, I'll leave that to David. Well, the MEG is very interesting. So it's not like... So with MEG, what you basically have to do is you record the uh, the MEG from sensors, and then what you do is you make inferences about where that activity that you've recorded from the sensors actually arises from in the brain. And that depends upon a whole variety of assumptions. And typically, for example, electrical con- conductivity of the skull, the scalp, um, uh, how the, the shape of the head and things like this. And typically what we do is when we construct these uh, what we call source-based level uh, measures from this MEG sensor, we incorporate a lot of data, like, for example, the patient's MRI and stuff like that. And for superficial sources, you might actually get better spatial resolution than for deep sources and things like that. But typically, probably, if you combine maybe MEG and EEG together, you can probably maybe get five millimetres five millimeters to, uh, to a centimetre of spatial resolution, which is certainly sufficient for um, the localization of maybe the primary epileptogenic zone, but also particularly more than sufficient if you're then going to go and subsequently put grids in afterwards to better localise that activity. So, um, so MEG is quite, quite, quite powerful in that regard. Yeah, I'm just trying to get a get a handle on what what type of brain lesions and how specific they are to to epilepsy. Because as I understand it, cerebral palsy also involves lesions to the brain. Is it the size of the lesions? Uh, lesions? Is it the regions where they are? Are they similar diseases in uh, similar disorders in different regions? And does it does that tell us about how they originate? So anything that injures the surface of the brain can cause epilepsy, and certainly cerebral palsy also has multiple different causes. So that uh, it could range from a, an injury through a blood vessel being blocked through uh, developmental abnormalities of the brain produce cerebral palsy. But about a third of people with cerebral palsy also have seizures. But any structural abnormality affecting the surface of the brain can produce seizures, be it a a scar or an injury or a tumour or a stroke, uh, anything you like. And there are other ranges of causes too, genetic causes and metabolic abnormalities and so on. So uh, epilepsy is really a symptom. But in the cases we're interested in finding uh, for surgical treatment, generally there's an abnormality such as a developmental abnormality affecting one small area or Mm. a long-standing scar. How these actually produce the seizures of course is another another show altogether mm, mm. Uh, is there an answer yet or is that something we're Not still exactly investigating no. yeah let's talk about seizures for a second mark because i think this is something that we, we've discussed before on the program some time ago when you were last on but there is quite a range of seizures and the the common view is the person you know having the seizure on the on their side sort of on the on the floor but seizures can be just a person staring off into space can't they they're quite different that's exactly right so uh, generalised convulsions where people collapse and shake mm. are the sort that people are familiar with and mm. what people generally uh, imagine is occurring when you talk about seizures, but they're relatively infrequent amongst 
adults, certainly with seizures, who are usually having minor episodes that last for 30 seconds to two minutes. Mm -hmm. They might get some warning when they start that represents the area of brain involved short-circuiting at the beginning that might produce symptoms they're conscious of. And then the events go on to produce loss of awareness where they lose contact with their environment. Now, that doesn't mean they collapse or go completely unconscious, but they're not quite themselves for a minute or two. Mm -hmm. And after that, they might be quite confused. Are the, are the symptoms primarily um, of the mind in that sense, or are there, there are other sort of physical symptoms? I mean, you know, are they, they lethargic, are they tired after a seizure, are there a whole lot of other sort of impacts that occur for people who have these seizures? People, yeah. people sometimes aren't aware they've had a seizure, which mm. can be a problem making the diagnosis. But uh, but often people feel a bit washed out or tired after them, certainly. Yeah. And, and how do you go about treating that range of seizures at the moment? I mean, what's the, I mean, we've discussed to some degree the issue of surgical implantations and so forth, but I can imagine there's a, there's a whole range of potential treatments. That's right. So the medications have been the mainstay, obviously, and, and about 70% of people are adequately treated with medications mm-hmm. that are available now, those with focal epilepsy. So there's still a third of patients who aren't treated adequately, and so we look to other new treatments and being able to use... Uh, uh, devices like MEG to localise where seizures come from might allow surgical treatment for some of these people. There's been a lot of interest recent times in dietary therapies. There are other new drugs. TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, has been used and other forms of electrical stimulation are being explored as treatments. And there are devices which can be implanted into the brain to try and short-circuit the seizures as they're happening, a bit like mm. with uh, cardioreversion where electric shocks are put to the heart when people have an arrhythmia. So the same sort of idea has been used in the brain and there are devices available that do that at the moment. Mm. Now, we still have in the studio Professor Mark Cook and Professor David Lilly. And Lovely. we... Lily. <laughs> at least I dropped the T. So, I mean, people say, do you say life of Riley? Uh, no. No, you say life of Riley, don't you? Oh, there you go. So what's the big deal? <laughs> Mark, Sorry, I need, this, I need again, my brain but... scanned. <laughs> uh, well, we, we brought you back this time. So yeah. um, now, we... Um, we were talking about uh, ways of looking at the brain and looking at uh, epilepsy and so forth. David, you, you mentioned all this interpretation that has to go on when you do these scans. How do you um, do that interpretation given everyone's head is different? Everyone's skull, I assume, has a slightly different thickness. How do you pull that data out? And, and, and oh, get so, it? I mean, the, the, the way you do it, you construct your head models. And the, the first thing you do is it's, it's, it's complicated, but, but the first thing you have to do in MEG is that, unlike EEG, you have to be a little bit careful about head movement because basically mm. what you do is you're putting the head into kind of like a big hairdryer and there's still a bit of space around the sort of the side right. because you're not putting anything in direct contact with the head and so of course the head can move so first you have to actually measure the head position continuously mm. uh, and then what you do is you use that to actually sort of kind of stabilize the frame of reference that you then use for um, for the relationship of the senses to the brain then you ultimately have to uh, make inferences about um, where the sources arise from and so what we do typically is we use the patient's uh, MRI scan to actually generate what's called a head model and then what you basically do is you generate what's called a forward model you basically assume that there are current sources in the brain and then you basically ask the question is what kind of signal would that produce outside the brain and then you basically invert that that approach and there's a whole complicated uh, which mm. I don't understand, sort of, you know, a uh, 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 variety of mathematical methods called inverse uh, modelling methods, which you use to then go from the senses 
the sense level description to what's actually mm. happening inside the brain. So mathematically, it's actually very, very complicated and computationally quite, 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 quite difficult. And which is probably one of the reasons why MEG hasn't been adopted as sort of um, as assiduously yep. as, it, as, it, as it should be, because technically it's much more complicated. And the data analysis pipe, excuse me, <coughs> data analysis pipelines are much more complicated. Mm. So in the southern hemisphere, we have the only one at the moment that's. Uh, uh, the only MEG system that's been used uh, in the treatment and diagnosis and management of that. Extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Mark, in terms of data, I mean, this is where your work also comes in, and you're you're looking at, I think, last uh, we spoke, it was about 70 terabytes of data collected from the brain on seizures and then working out how to, how to counteract that seizure. How, how do you counteract something happening in something as complex as the brain, even if, if David can tell you where? That's right. So we're very interested to be able to predict it, and that's what we spoke about last time. So we're still working around these sorts of problems. Uh, what we have learnt is that if you provide stimulation to the brain when a seizure's actually started, it's quite difficult to stop it. Mm-hmm. In some individuals, you can stop them very reliably, and, and sometimes it's a little more difficult. Uh, but you can't always do it as predictably as you'd anticipate. However, what we have learnt is that if you can stimulate before the seizure happens then you've got a much better chance of preventing it occurring. Now, to do that, obviously, you need a good system for predicting. Mm. Um, At the moment, we don't use the MEG for that, but we're hopeful that we can use the information that we've learnt from the MEG toward that end. And uh, one of the reasons I was just overseas was to explore a collaborative exercise between David, uh, a a very prominent uh, neurologist and engineer in the United States called Brian Litt, and ourselves around analysing these vast amounts of data. But a big problem has been actually uh, how do you handle such huge volumes of mm. data? How do you move them around? How do you share them? Because we'd like to share this data and we, we are setting up sharing facilities so that people can access this and learn more. But actually moving it around, finding somewhere for it to live yep. and then being able to interact with it in, in real time so that you can actually run these routines on it is incredibly challenging. So we hope to uh, get data sets up that cover the MEG as well as some other sophisticated imaging that David's involved with at Swinburne, we hope to get all of these data sets up and available so that we can all interact and learn more from them. And we we think this is where the action's going to be. It's going to be large groups of people interacting around these vast tracts of data and mm. making sense of them. Uh, you've heard how, how do you do that? I mean, when we're talking about literally tens of terabytes of data, where, where do you put it? Well, at the moment, we put it on a system. There's a, a portal called the IEEG portal. We have some mm-hmm. living at the university, but we have another copy living on the IEEG portal, which is on the Amazon cloud. Mm. So the Amazon cloud is what we actually used to use for the NeuroVista study when we were doing brain prediction, uh, seizure prediction then. Uh, so it all lived on the Amazon cloud, which has vast computing capacity and vast storage capacity mm. for a relatively low cost. Mm. So these sorts of services are becoming more widely available and used. Yeah, look, it's fascinating. We're going to have to keep up to date, get you guys back in as this progresses, because it's um, it really is uh, an area where you know only one of these instruments uh, in the southern hemisphere is quite. Uh, actually, should, be, should clarify, there are actually two, two sites. There's actually also MEG at Macquarie University, oh. but they don't use it for epilepsy. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they use it just in case we get <laughs> complaints from people at Macquarie University. Uh, well, they're, they're, <laughs> they're a fair way from here. Complain away. Um, look, it's great work, guys, and um, hopefully this will really have a positive impact on people at epilepsy over the coming years. Um, We'll keep up to date with you guys on that and uh, thanks so much for coming in, Professor Mark Cook and Professor David Liley. Thank you very much. Um, 
from uh, respectively from St Vincent's Hospital and the University of Melbourne and from Swinburne University from the Brain and Psychological Sciences Research Centre. Folks, we're pretty much out of time. We're going to have to finish up. Uh, Dr Cromo, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Shane. And Dr Diani, good to see you. Great as always to be I think here. We'll see you again next week, won't we? That's right. I'll, I'll come in and... Uh we can update the Pluto story. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it just for you. I know you get excited. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.